Can you see anything? Uh, uh, no. I, I didn't. I didn't steal it. I swear. I thought we were. I didn't. Mac, snap out of it. What? This is an Albuquerque. I thought we were. I thought we were supposed to be recording another podcast today. Yeah. Is, is this a dungeon? Oh, I thought it was a cave. Or... Is it a cave dungeon? Wait. I think I hear somebody coming. I see you boys rested up real good. I mean, we're kind of stuck in a sitting position, so I don't know how good this rest is. Well enough for my purposes. Allow me to introduce myself. My name is Clovis. Clovis? Cannibal Clovis. Oh, you're like like that one villain with the hockey mask? No, 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 Mac. Yeah, yeah. Don't offend him. Cannibals are very sensitive about that stuff. Oh, I wouldn't worry about that too much if I were you two. I just came down to see how you were doing. Wait, Clovis, is this the kind of thing where your parents named you Cannibal Clovis, or is this something that you added yourself? I see I was a young boy. My parents thought it would be a real funny joke. They did not realize they were condemning me to a life of eating my fellow man. Your parents made you eat people? No, they named me Cannibal. Well, how does that make you eat people? Don't you know you live up to whatever your name is? My last name's Potter, and I've never made a pot. Yes, but you have red hair and a lightning bolt scar. That is true. My name's Sexton. We don't talk about you. I came in to check on you boys. Can we go? You'll be going all right. Well, other than your intestines, like, can we leave? Like, is this a... No. You'll be leaving in 45 minutes to an hour to go in my gut. I'm gonna need that time to ready the kitchen. I'll see you boys real soon. Hey, do you still have that file from earlier? Yeah, I was filing my nails earlier. Fancy How that. about you file your cuffs, Whoa. and while we're getting out of here, we talk about our favorite scary movie villains. Please listen carefully. Welcome back to the Nerd's Guide to the Apocalypse. My name is Judd Potter. And I'm Max Sexton. And you found your way back to the Apocalypse's Favorite Movies podcast. This week we're going to be talking about our top terrifying movie villains. While trying not to die horribly. True. Before we do that, though, we're each going to talk about a thing we've been watching, reading, or playing that's got us burning to talk about it. Uh, would you like me to start, or would you like to? I mean, you're kind of distracted with the file, but I mean, it's your call. Yeah, I'm, I'll be. Let me work on the file. You, you go ahead and start talking. All right. Okay. Well, this last week, um, on a whim, I, I replayed Portal Two. I've nice. Been little, yeah, I've been a little pressed for time, and I figured it'd be nice to go back and revisit an older game that I could kind of breeze right through and enjoy. Um, and while I don't think it's got the darkness of the first Portal, I think the writing is the writing with the way they handle character and. Uh, environmental design is on point, if not better than the original. Cool. A controversial opinion, though, that might be. First one's a good one. The first first was one of the classic video games. The first one is the only perfect video game, I would argue. Yeah. But but it's been fun to go back through Portal 2, and, uh, you know, I've been playing around with the level editor, that's nice, but more than anything else, I've really been struck by um, the, uh, I've been struck by Stephen Merchant's performance as Wheatley. Okay. Uh, he does a tremendous job with the voice acting. I've also been very impressed with Ellen McLean as GLaDOS, the uh, evil computer monster. Uh, also, slight spoilers, she's a potato in one scene. That's pretty exciting. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I think I think it improves on the original in all sorts of wonderful ways. And as sort of a way to unwind from like the stress of wrapping up uh, senior year... It's nice to go back and revisit something that I have fond memories of. So for those who have not played Portal. Yes. So for those who have not played Portal, all you really need to know is you play as Chell. She's this woman who, for years and years and years now, has been kept in this um, slowly uh, self-destructing and collapsing uh, scientific research center called uh, called the Aperture Enrichment Center. Or the Aperture Science Enrichment Center. Um... So you also have some history with the evil computer that used to run this enrichment center who killed off all the scientists years and years before. Spoilers for Portal 1, but it's okay. I mean, mm-hmm. it's one of those things. The game's been out for a while. I don't feel too bad. Spoilers. Well, I've heard that the cake is not true. Brought to you by your dank 2006 memes. 
Um, but yeah, so you play. So the goal quickly becomes to try and escape the enrichment center, which at first means that you need to defeat Glados, and you're teamed up with this little British robot named Wheatley, who's voiced by Stephen Merchant. Um, and obviously the plot gets a lot more complicated from that point. You, it's really the game is really an exploration of the history of the Aperture Science Enrichment Center, mm -hmm. which if you've played the original, you get all sorts of wonderful lore. The game's been out for years, um, so. It's not. It's like it's nothing too shocking. Most, I'm sure, many of you who listen to this have played the thing before. If you haven't, uh, it's available for PlayStation 3, Xbox 360, and PC. Uh, it's a it's a fun ride. It's a funny ride. It, it's very Douglas Adams in terms of its writing in the best possible way. Um, and personally, I've just enjoyed going back and revisiting it. Very cool. Uh, but yeah, enough about me. Um, as you're continuing your escape attempt there, Judd. Uh, what about you? What do you? Um, what do you find? Well, last week, between the tripods and being kidnapped by a cannibal in Louisiana somehow... Uh, We've had a weird week. Yeah. I, I have time for Portal 2. I don't know, but I managed to watch a documentary. Oh, cool. What'd um, you watch? It was called Finders Keepers. Uh, it came out two years ago, um, and it, it's only it's just now on Netflix, like just recently. And it, it's, about, um, it's, a, it's about a true story where... Uh, I'll read you the IMDb summary to give you the basics. And you might actually remember this from the mid-2000s and the news and stuff. Uh, Shannon Wisnat purchased a grill at an auction. Inside the grill was an amputated leg. What follows is a story centered on the enterprising Wisnat and John Wood, the man whose leg wound up in the grill to an, due to an odd chain of events. And so by exploring... The, what the documentary does is by exploring how this leg ended up there, like what made a guy want to sort of mummify his own leg... And what made um, this guy want to keep it and claim it as his own property and not just give the guy's freaking leg back uh, tells you a lot about both characters. That sounds positively surreal. It's amazing. It's, it's like one of those uh, stranger than fiction true stories. Um, and you, you come to find out like there are real like pathos-filled reasons for both people to do different things about... Uh, their fathers, where they come from, and where they want to be in lives, and how they see themselves, and the cognitive dissonance with which you know everybody you know understands and misunderstands themselves and their lives, and it it becomes this. Uh, the best documentaries will tell you a simple story like there's a leg in a grill, and the guy who bought the grill won't I, give the leg back to the guy who used to own it. See, you say that's a simple story, but I have so many questions <laughs> right. going into this. You have an interesting definition of simple. Well, I'm, and I mean simple only like on a cosmic cosmically it seems simple. Like it's not like we're investigating like some sort of theological philosophical question, but it becomes something that answers a lot of philosophical questions you might have. It, it, it definitely has a point of view. It's very cool. It sounds very Douglas Adams, but in real life, <laughs> which yeah. is a sentence I never thought I'd utter. The second time Douglas Adams showed up today. But yeah, I highly recommend this one. It's a hour twenty two minutes. It's on Netflix, and uh, it is it is it is hard to look away. It is a weird train, like two train wrecks of lives colliding uh, to make this leg become this something a lot more than it is. It is it, it, a good study of like how we make symbols out of things, you know. And um, so, Finders Keepers on Netflix, highly recommended. All right. Well, have you made any progress with that file? Uh, I did. Break off my thumbnail, and it's bleeding and hurts a little bit. Oh, sweet Jesus, we need to get that back on. No, no, it's, it seems to have fallen back behind me. I can't I can't quite get to it, so... We need to get you some of that Resident Evil 7 Healy juice. Well, if we were in Resident Evil 7, that would work, but Mac, we are, of course, in real life. You're right. Um, I think the only thing left is for us to continue with the show. On to the main event. So we're being held captive by... A man who's rather frightening, but I'll, I'll bet you my bottom dollar that he's not as frightening as some of the film villains we've seen. I bet not. So, we each have five, and we're going to, after we've listed off our five favorite uh, frightening film villains, we're going to each pick one from our lists and make them fight head-to-head, -head, and we will see which is the most frightening movie villain. Uh, that, that is what lies in store for us today. Um, hopefully an escape, a dramatic and heroic escape from this hellhole. And maybe I'll have my fingers, all of them. Maybe, well, at least nine. Hard Cut 
Those were some fun shenanigans. Now let's get to the list. <laughs> okay, so would you like to lead in or shall I? I'll start this week. Um, yeah, I started last week. Yeah. Um, so uh, we're doing frightening movie villains, right? Right. They're not necessarily from horror movies, but these are the movie villains that frightened us the most. We found to be the most effective at generating tension, you know. Um, and so mine, uh, they're kind of like cinematic Clovises, if you will. It's funny how this always works out. I know, um, it's super convenient. I wonder what happened to those tripods, though. Maybe someday we'll find out. Who knows? Anyway, my first pick is going to be the pick that brought us uh, to this topic in the first place. Um, Robert Mitchum's character, the actor, he played Harry Powell in Night of the Hunter. Yes, you so were telling me about this. He's one. kind of our transitionary fabric to this episode. Um, and he is a character who is quite terrifying because he um, pursues these children with... As kind of this force of nature, of, of evil, if you will. Um, specifically, one scene that I want to refer to when I'm describing how scary he is. Um, like last week, we talked a little bit about how he comes and he's singing hymns and he woos their mother with scripture quotes and all this stuff. And that, that that's all subtly terrifying, right? Um, because he's manipulating uh, people's sense of goodness and belief uh, against them to do evil. And... Uh, to, well, essentially to get money for himself, but at whatever cost, which makes it kind of evil. Um, and so what we have happen is, um, here's the scene. So the kids are running away from him, and it's nighttime. And they're, they're literally running on foot toward the river. And um, as they're getting close to the river, he's right behind them. And they get into a boat, and they push it out into the river, and he's right behind him. He's wading in after them. And it looks like they're not going to get away because the current's so slow. And... Uh, suddenly the current picks up and they start to get away and it's it's clear that he's not going to be able to catch them and he screams and you heard a little bit of that in the trailer I played last week um, but it's this kind of deep guttural almost animal kind of scream that makes it more than human it almost sounds like some kind of demon or lion or a combination of the two um, but I think that's all Robert Mitchum's acting actually I don't think they did any post I looked it up and I couldn't find anything but um that moment alone solidifies him as a terrifying movie villain. And, you know, the next shots you see are the kids in the barn that they've hidden in and they're, like, hiding out and it's the next morning and you see him crossing the horizon on a horse whistling. And so he's always around just circling them like a shark. So he does the Annie Wilkes thing where he bounces back and forth between, like, violent psychopath and, like... Charming, but you know it's a facade. Right. It, that's the first time you get the threat of... Well, not the first time, but that is that is one time where... Uh, a significant moment where you get the real threat of physical violence. He is my first pick. Uh, Robert Mitchum's Harry Powell from Night of the Hunter. What is your first pick? Well, likewise, I'm, a lot of my, a lot of my um, choices for frightening villains venture into like the more supernatural territory. Mm -hmm. But the character I'm going to lead with is one who is... L Situated pretty firmly in the in like the normal world, and that is Anton Chigurh from the Coen's 2007 No Country for Old Men. Nice, so bold opening choice. Yes, uh, I figured you'd save him. No, well, see, the catch with Anton Chigurh is while I find him frightening, I find the others like more frightening in the instance. Chigurh for me is more frightening conceptually. Okay, I get that. Uh, so Anton Chigurh is this. Basically, this hitman in West Texas, who's on the um, who's on the hunt for this guy who's made off with cartel money, played by Javier Bardem, and Chigurh is best described as more deadly than the bubonic plague. This is a guy who just kills whoever he comes across remorselessly. Yeah, I, I would say that um, my guy plays at being a force of nature, but Chigurh kind of is a force of nature, right? Um, for Chigurh, there's no reason to pretend like, like, there's no reason to be passionate about anything he's doing. This is just his lot in life. Um, and he's embraced it, and he's become, again, this ruthless, passionless, hunting, killing machine that just cannot be stopped under any circumstances. But what makes, what moves him past from being, like, your standard sort of slasher villain is the fact that there is a logic behind it. And it's a bit of a deranged logic, but it's this belief in um, inevitability, the inflexibility of the universe, that all you can do is sort of make choices, but you're fated to go down one road or the other. You're always being led down by the universe. And there's a scene early on, it's mimicked, it's mimicked again later, and like we see trace elements of this throughout, where Chigurh uh, 
basically has does a, does a coin flip, puts it down on the table and says, call it. And whether or not the person on the other end of that coin flip successfully calls the coin determines whether or not that character lives or dies. The arbitrariness of, the, of his character with which he kills and acts I think is the most frightening part. He represents sort of this Nietzschean nihilistic worldview and that's what makes him really frightening. So what makes him more than just like the grown-ups Harvey Two-Face? What makes him more... Harvey Two-Face. <laughs> <laughs> the Batman villain. For those paying attention at home. Because Two-Face, uh, two Harvey Dent... Yeah, no, no, it is Two-Face. Yeah, for, for some reason, like... For, for the kids at home, he flips, he's a Batman villain who flips a coin and basically lets that make every decision he makes. Right. The, what, what separates him from, Har, from uh, Harvey Dent... Harvey Dent uh, is trying to pursue some sort of justice. And his thing is, like, to let, the, to let chance Randomness decide... Randomness is justice. Randomness is justice. Sugar doesn't even go there. There is no justice, there is no meaning in the universe. You can only choose to obtain power. And that's what he does. And I think I think that you can see that when they're in the, their relationship with the coin. So when if you take Two-Face's coin, he gets really upset because that's his line to justice. Because that coin has um it was a two-sided coin before it was burned. It was like it was a, a two-sided coin that had the same side on each side. So he would pretend to leave things up to chance, but he trusted his own gut and his own morality. And then once he has his accident, uh, one side of the coin is burned, so it's actually a 50-50 chance, and then that justice becomes his thing. And so Shigur... Shigur, after the coin flip, spoilers, the coin, the guy survives the coin flip. Shigur leaves this is him... one of many coin flip scenes. Yeah. Shigur leaves the uh, the shopkeep with the coin and is like, keep it. It's your lucky coin. Don't put it, within all, don't put it in with all the others because then it'll just become a coin. Which it is. So... Suddenly, the act is what becomes significant, not the coin itself. The coin is just a means to an end. Right. So he's playing with the guy. He's saying, no, this coin is super magical and significant. And then he says, actually, no, it's not. <laughs> and so, yeah. For me, that's, that, like, that's really what makes um, that's what makes Shigur frightening. Yeah. The arbitrariness of the whole thing. It's not about justice. It's not even about like really embracing, like hoping the, uh, the universe will choose the right thing because that still implies some sort of telos. Right. You don't get that with Shigur. All you get is, like, the cold violence of that coin. It's not like he's the nihilist who will proudly say he believes in nothing. Because yeah. he actually actually believing in nothing means you don't believe in nothing, right? Like, right. There's that no be... belief. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that, yeah. You're onto it. I would have, I would have added him to my list, but I knew he would be on yours. Right. And he, well, I think he's frightening. I maintain, I don't think he's the most frightening performance. Mm -hmm. I think he's the most frightening concept, but okay. I don't think he's the most frightening villain. Before we move on to my next pick, I wanted, I wanted to do, do like one little comparison between uh, Harry Powell from Night of the Hunter and Anton Shakur. Go for it. Because Harry Powell is also passionately pursuing money. Uh, and, and, but here's the difference. It's for his own ends. So if we want to bring Blood Simple's in, uh, world interpretation into this, that's the Coen Brothers' first movie. In that movie, um, a character who's also like these two hitmen says that uh, he went money simple and made some bad decisions. Blood Simple. I said, no, he went money simple. That's this quote. Where Is he it said, really? Yeah, he says, I went money simple and I took oh. a job I shouldn't have because I got blinded by the money. Okay. And so uh, Harry Powell actually kind of does the same thing here. He goes for the money. But it, when we when you talked about how Sugar is passionless, it reminded me of um, how Harry Powell, when he marries the widow, the mother of these kids, uh, on their wedding night, she's, like, expecting they're going to have sex. But she he, she he starts to get on to her about how women are responsible for the fall of man. And he goes into this biblical rant against women and how um, – and he basically punishes her and makes her feel like crap. In comparison, Shigur would just kill her, take the money, and leave. Right. I mean, well, I mean, he is not interested in sex. The only thing he's interested in, the only thing he's uh, that that motivates him is getting a hold of that money. And so he does whatever he becomes whatever he needs to to get it. And so that 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 uh, it, it, there's an interesting comparison to be made between Shigur and yeah. Harry they're they're comparable characters. They're yeah. very comparable characters. And again, on a strictly conceptual level, I think Shigur is the most frightening villain. But we're talking we're talking performance here as well. Yeah. So my second pick is going to be uh, the first of a few machines in my list. That um, is Robert Patrick's T one thousand from Terminator Two: Judgment Day. 
funny you should say that. That was also my fourth pick. Sweet. So, okay, we do a dual pick here. I like think we have to. Cause... So, again, we have nine picks unless we have another similar one. Because I think the T-1000 is one of the most frightening characters in cinema. So, the scene that I always think of when I'm thinking of terrifying Robert Patrick. There are a few in that movie, obviously. But it's the one where the security guard is at the vending machine. And he slowly rises up out of the tile floor because he's a liquid terminator. And it was Which, actually revolutionary and, CG and, you're, and it actually still looks okay. Oh, it still looks good. Yeah. I think. Yeah. And um, he gets up behind him and he makes his finger into a like a spear, a tiny little like chopstick spear. And he goes through the eye. And it is, I mean, maybe I watched it too young, but that is a terrifying image. What gets me about the T-1000 is, again, it's a symbolic thing as much as anything else, but I'll get back to the performance because that's what sells it. So, the T-1000 represents an authority figure. Yeah. A police officer. But it's not this big, burly, bodybuilder, Austrian man. He's Joe Schmo, like the average police officer. A very unassuming figure. Very, 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 like, normal voice. Very unassuming. And this is back in the 80s. This is, like... The widespread like fear of like police corruption wasn't quite what it, it wasn't what it is today. Mm-hmm. He was like a friendly neighborhood policeman kind of thing. But here we have this violent figure who will stop at nothing. Again, and once again, a very passionless villain, but one who will use like use everything that you know about the world against you. Yeah, and it's that corruption of authority that I think that like that's what gets to me. Because authority is the sort of thing that we, we grant it easily. Yeah, I could get in all the, all the enlightenment stuff of, like, social contract yeah. or whatever. But here we see the corruption and, like, misuse of that. And that's terrifying. And that's aided, of course, by the very flat, almost, like, unassumingly normal performance of... Uh, Robert Patrick. The normal, flat performance of Robert Patrick yeah. throughout the film. You know, there's... A theme I'm seeing here where we're, we're kind of scared of we, we find the most compelling villains the ones who are able to either they who either don't have normal emotions or are able to manipulate people's perceptions of their emotions to hide the fact that they're an emotional vacuum that pursues whatever end they want for whatever reason well we might be moving away from that with my list in due time my list is pretty consistent on that actually um, I, I have one more who's a bit like that but the ones that I'm uh, we'll get to it in due time, okay. but not all mine so are... you got a passionate villain or two. Yeah, I've got a few passionate villains. Good, okay. Because uh, I, I think passion can be just as frightening as passionlessness. Good. Because there's a certain unpredictability that comes with high emotionality. Right. And speaking of high emotionality, hot damn, you got the cuffs off! What? I did. I did. That, that clinking you just heard, that was the cuffs hitting the ground. Is that a padlock on the door? I know you like puzzles, Mac. What, how, what's, the, what's the code? Do you have the code? I mean, I don't. I... Oh, bugger everything. It's got some sort of pictographic code on the thing. Um, can you make his face out of it? I mean, I can. Tr- I might be able to try. I'm going to start going through combinations here. Um, to... Why do you do that? Why don't you tell us your next pick? Yeah, let's see. Um, next, well, since that was both of ours, actually, technically, wouldn't you do yours next? Oh, yeah. I'll, while you do that, I'll do my yeah, next pick. Let me, let me get started on this, and we'll get... Well, leaving uh, the T-1000 in the dust... Um, I'm going to move on to a different machine of, uh, we're, we're going to get about 8,000 robots better. We're going from the T-1000 to HAL 9000. That's a lot of HALs. Yeah, yeah so we are, um, are 8,000 robots smarter now. And uh, HAL 9000, of course, played by Douglas Rain, um, voiced by Douglas Rain, I should say. He's a red eye and um, on the spaceship in the movie 2001 A Space Odyssey by Stanley Kubrick. Um, 1968. Ha- open the pod bay doors, Hal. Um, there is. I'm working on it. <laughs> open the pod bay doors, Max. I'm opening. I'm working on it. Um, There's a lot of buttons here. Hal didn't have this much trouble while he did. Hal's a it. robot. He was also like a dick. Um, so Let Hal. Me just peek your audio really quick. Yeah. So um, Hal is interesting. He's um, so he's a robot that gains sentience and kills all but the two waking members of the crew on the on the ship. And um, so what makes Hal so scary is you've got these this, this crew of people, and it's, it's Hal's, like we were saying earlier, it's his emotionlessness. He is um, a, 
like I said, he's a red eye of a camera, like an iris of a camera that he's in several places around the ship. And um, at one point he reads lips to understand that they're plotting against him. And I, I mean, I, I feel okay talking about certain scenes here. Um, this came out in 1968, so go watch it if you haven't, certainly. But um, uh, I, I, specifically, the scene in which, spoilers for 1968, three, two, one the scene in which Hal dies and he gets to sing Daisy that song where he's kind of re-going through his programming that scene makes him almost more human than the astronauts because we get the idea that these astronauts they're pretty emotionless they're pretty stoic um, but we get the idea that they were picked because of their stoicism because they can handle being in space and dire situations and all this stuff but uh, Hal gets to be one of the most passionate members of the ship when he's actually like experiencing emotions, not wanting to die, um, and that informs the way you understand the previous performance, the previous like version of the character, and in in that light, you have this the emotional member of the crew who's going to kind of make everything go wrong, is actually the robot, and um, that that's actually really scary. And anything that goes wrong in space is going to be scary because space is a vacuum and it's terrifying, and so how. All of that put together makes Hal a very compelling, frightening villain. I will say Hal's acts of evil uh, do actually create, for me, what is one of the most frightening uh, scenes in cinema. Uh huh. And that's where Frank Poole is spiraling outwards into space. Right. That yeah. That's a scene that, should you know anything about space travel, is just... It's gut-wrenching. And if you watched the um, movie Europa Report with us, you saw the homage to that with, um, with Charlotte Copley floating out into space. Um, and so, yeah, Hal is one of the immortal villains of uh, of cinema for me. So what makes him frightening? Because right now it seems like you've almost made him a very sympathetic figure. Right, no, so that's part of what makes him frightening. What I was saying is, like, he's the you're, you're out in space and you need the Stoics. You need the people who can control their emotions. And so the fact that Hal is making these bad decisions based on his emotions, more or less, um, that he's making bad judgment calls in such a high-stakes situation is scary. And the fact that he's always watching, the fact that you can't get away from him, he reads their lips when they're trying to talk about him and they're hiding in a ship. Um, the fact that uh, when the main character wants to get back into the ship and he says, open the pod baby doors, Hal repeatedly, famous line, uh, Hal doesn't open the doors. And that moment of helplessness and the, the amount of power that Hal has over the ship and subsequently over the crew, that's what's scary. The idea that... Uh, the thing that's in charge of the very air you breathe uh, is a little bit crazy. Sounds almost like GLaDOS from Portal 2. It, it is the ultimate authoritarian. It's this crazy person that's in charge of the very air you breathe. And that that's what's scary about Hal to me. Okay. I buy that. I buy that. And so how do you, how do you work against it? How do you defeat something like that? It's, there's a feeling of hopelessness there. And the fact that he's always around and he's like... He can see everything you do and basically know everything it's you the think. It makes him really creepy. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. Oh, hang on. Something just happened. Oh, no. Our friend Judd just stumbled into a cinema snare. Was it creepy? Creepy was our cinema <laughs> snare. Um, so, this, the, the door here can the door here can wait for oh, just a moment. Oh, no. What's um, this around my foot? Don't worry. We'll get you out of it. But, as it's usual, you yeah, don't you know cinema snares glow? To get out of this cinema snare, what you need to do is describe to me what you consider to be one of, if not the most frightening scenes in cinema, and sell me on uh, sell me on why it's so frightening. Okay. Okay, you gotta give me a second here. That's fine. What is it? One of them? Let's pick one scene. Again, you were fair to me last week, so I'm gonna be fair okay, to you. Okay. Okay. It doesn't necessarily. On the first it round. doesn't have to be your most favorite. However, it. I think top ten territory. I can't believe I said creepy. What the creepy? Okay. Um, I knew you were gonna say that. I, I had an adjective. I had a different adjective in mind too. Um, okay. Okay. So the most, a, a very frightening scene in cinema. One of the scenes that scared me the most growing up was uh, a scene from Jaws. So when Richard Drive, his scientist character, he's investigating a boat, and um, it's a jump scare. But like you're expecting Jaws at any moment. You know, you've seen. The POV shots of the shark, really, up to this point. You've seen a couple moments of Jaws. But um, he's searching around, and all of a sudden, 
uh, he's like, look, and it's nighttime under the water. It's really creepy. We haven't seen anything like this yet in the movie. And he's looking into this boat, and he looks into the window, and all of a sudden a skeleton falls out. And, like, it's it's that classic Scooby-Doo or Spielberg thing, but the, the, the tension that had led to that moment and the spookiness of that... Uh, uh, the tension that led to that moment and the spookiness of the jump scare, the unexpectedness of it, because you're expecting to see like maybe a shark, you know, come out, and the last thing you expect is this grotesque human figure, and so you see that, and it, so that that is my most scary scene. So it's both a payoff to the suspense in the form of a jump scare, as well as a subversion of what you would expect. And I, I think there might be more tense or more scary scenes. Even objectively, that I've seen. But for me, that was like subjectively. I was so young when I saw Jaws that that scene really freaked me out. There we go. I think I think you're out of the cinema. Oh, good. Story. Okay. All right. I'm gonna get what back. To, I'm gonna get back to this uh, door lock actually right now as we're okay. doing this. Um. But yeah. So you've described Hell Nine Thousand. So I ought to. Uh, I ought to describe my third pick, shouldn't I? Yes. We're going out to Colorado. We're going to spend some time in the Overlook Hotel. So my t- so my pick is Jack Torrance, played by Jack Nicholson, mm-hmm. uh, from Stanley Kubrick's 1980 film The Shining. Good choice. Now, regardless of what you think of The Shining in comparison to the novel, because I know this is somewhat of a point of contention between the two of us. Well, I like both. I think they're just very different stories. Right. I think, I think Jack Nicholson's take on Jack Torrance... Is, is what sells this adaptation of The Shining. Because as opposed to the Stephen King thing where it's this descent of this good man into alcoholism and madness, mm-hmm. the Jack Torrance that Jack Nicholson plays is... He's got a history of violence, and we can yeah. tell from the outset he's a time bomb waiting to go off. Definitely and, feels more lived in than the Stephen King version. Mm-hmm. Every step of the way through The Shining, we're receiving constant reminders of what Jack has done. And we can recognize from the outset, it's not a surprise when he goes insane. We see it coming from square one. Mm-hmm. And somehow that makes it worse. This is a man who is passionately angry, who is defined by this deep anger and outrage at the way the world has treated him. But Jack Torrance, we see, as we just see him descend into madness, it, nothing surprises us that he's going there. But we're also afraid because... We've seen this is coming. We haven't seen the bottom of it. How deep does this rabbit hole go? And he progressively comes more and more deranged, more and more insane. um, Until we have this almost animalistic, bestial figure chasing little Danny Torrance through the hallways of the Overlook Hotel to the rhythmic beating of the drums, and it's just this mania. This shrieking, screaming, axe-wielding, almost incoherent figure. In comparison to the T-1000s, who's passionate, who's, excuse me, the T-1000s' passionless authoritarian power, the same as Hal in many ways. Yeah. Um, well, Hal is, well, never mind. You've, you've, you've thrown a wrench in that, so let me take that back. So, in contrast to the T-1000s' passionless um, abuse of power... Jack Torrance is someone who's in a position of power who we know shouldn't be there and we see progressively throughout the course of the entire narrative get more and more and more unhinged, more and more deranged and we're never sure how far it's going to go. Yeah. We're horrified because we can see it coming. Um, for me, that's what sells Jack Nicholson's performance. It is a passionate theory and hatred that passionless, logical evil, the form that is Shigur in the T-1000, yeah. they can't hold a candle to. Yeah, because this one, this one, you kind of understand it better. Yeah. You reckon, unlike those two, those two are alien and out there, but you recognize, you recognize Jack Torrance in you. Yeah, that's the scary thing. And that's the frightening thing. Yeah. Which, again, tuck that thought away because we're going to come back to something like that later on. A very good point. Well, I'm still having trouble with this lock, so I'm going to put a little more focus onto that. How about you... Did you try three zeros? There's no numbers on this thing. Oh, that's my idea's done. I mean, my first guess was going to be one, two, three, four, but nothing. Okay, well, I mean, I can take a crack at it if you get tired. I mean, I did work my way out of a cinema snare. You did. However, I am a Silent Hill fan. This is kind of my turf. You keep rolling, and I will go on to my second to last pick. 
penultimate, if you want to use a ten-cent word. Um, my second-to-last pick is a villain that I guarantee you know of. Normally, I try to start like by summarizing the movie they're in, in case you haven't seen it. You know, um, this villain's name is Darth Vader, played by a, a slew of people. Uh, voiced by <laughs> Max Face is great right now. Voiced by Darth Vader. Voiced by none other than James Earl Jones. Okay, all right. Sell me on why Darth Vader is one of the more frightening villains. Well, as you know, if you've paid attention to the Star Wars, I'm, I'm speaking specifically of the original film, the 1977 film. Um, Darth Vader, it, that, that is a fantasy series in space. It is sci-fi fantasy. Um, I think sci-fantasy is the colloquial term. Okay, sci-fantasy. Um, and what happens is you've got the, the young, undiscovered Arthur figure in Luke, um, and you've got the Black Knight who's ruling with uh, without, without justice. So he is the... Does that make Darth Sidious Morgan Le Fay? I would say so. Hmm, okay. Morgan Le Fay, um... Yeah, I mean, as far as a loose interpretation of right, Arthur yeah, it's not a goes, one to it's not a one-to-one. And so Darth Vader is scary in a lot of the same ways Bruce the Shark uh, from Jaws is scary. And he's not called Bruce in that movie. I, was, I just like Con and Bruce. That's for me. Um, <laughs> uh, but he's scary in a lot of ways. The, the shark in Jaws is scary because every th- uh, you were scared by the, the context and the subtext of Darth Vader, not exactly anything he does on screen. So you heard that he killed the Jedi, like an entire order of peaceful warrior monks. And this is out of the context of the prequels, I assume. No, so, so you get the idea... Uh, that Darth Vader was in some way, you get from Obi-Wan that he was in some way responsible for the end of the Jedi, the Jedi Order. Um, you get the scene where the Imperial officers are scared of him early on, where they talk about how he uses this old sorcery and things like that, and he force chokes one of them famously. Uh, that, that scene is actually, to me, when I watched it as a youth, was legitimately scary. I mean, I'm, I'm learning that I might have just been a terrified little boy. That might be all I'm <laughs> learning today. But that was a legitimately scary scene. And when Darth Vader is coming in behind Luke during the um, trench run at the end, uh, and I have you now, I find your lack of faith disturbing, those moments, like, you're, like Luke legitimately he provides a sense of danger. Then there's the look of him. Uh, Credit were due. I think that, like, to build off what you're saying, I think that was one of the strengths of Rogue One. Yeah. To take some of the more recent Star Wars films into comparison. For sure. Because they made Darth Vader hella scary in the new uh, And to me, to me, Rogue One, especially that final hallway scene, is a fulfillment of everything they set up about Darth Vader in the original Star Wars. Uh, it kind of washes the slate clean from the little scared boy of Anakin in the prequels. Um, you get this guy who you actually believe uses this old sorcery that nobody knows how to deal with, who uh, is more powerful than anybody can understand. Uh, and he basically is just this sheer Nietzschean ubermensch who can just exercise his will across the galaxy and nobody can stop him. And that is a frightening character. That is a frightening character. And um, I think you also see, I mean, and you all, the people's reactions to him. I mean, I've kind of touched on that, but the way um, everybody but Obi-Wan seems to be afraid of him uh, really has an impact. The way that uh, Leia stands up to him at the beginning is we like Leia so much. She's such a remarkable character because of her courage in the face of this terrifying guy. If he was not as scary as he is, Leia would not play as well. But when she's standing up to this, like, black hole of a man, like... Well, she's standing up to the void and not not flinching. You know, she's got this courage, and we can respect her. And I think that has a lot to do, not just with Carrie Fisher's performance, but with how scary Darth Vader is. So that is my case for Darth Vader. I think that's actually a very compelling case. I think that's a very compelling case. The prequels kind of ruined him for me. Right, and I'm and so I'm talking about him like, uh, in canon from Rogue One. The I'm talking about Darth Vader, not Anakin Skywalker. Right, if that works. Which I can go there. And again, he's more, they talk about how he's more machine than man, you know? And so you get that whole, you know, how much I think how much of ourselves can we actually see in him? He's, he's kind of this force, this terrifying inhuman I think force. You're, I think you're just scared of cyborgs. I'm terrified of computers, man. I don't know. Computers are friends, not food. <laughs> That's Bruce the Shark <laughs> from Finding Nemo. Uh, okay. So what is that's that's Darth Vader? That's my second to last yeah. pick. What is your? What's penultimate? my penultimate pick? Um, 
So I'm keeping going with my sort of like fright, my fearful passion. Okay. And I'm going with uh, Kevin Spacey's John Doe Ooh, from David fin- from David Fincher's 1995 Seven. Uh huh. So we got I want to put this in context. Yeah, I want to paint, I wanna paint this as a picture for you. You've been watching this gritty crime thriller starring Morgan Freeman and. Brad Pitt. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. No. Although I would watch that show. <laughs> I would watch the hell out of that. Yeah. But they're like in this sort of like 1990s gritty rain-soaked city. And they've been exper- They've been ex- um, uh, investigating. They've been investigating this string of ongoing serial killings that are all based on the uh, seven deadly sins. And lo and behold, they walk back in. And we see in the foreground, just out of frame, there's this figure walking and he's got bandages over his fingers and we cut around and we see that he's covered in blood he's out of focus detectives detective and he lets out this terrifying scream detectives and we turn around and we see a character who's not been we see an actor who's not been billed in this film we see kevin spacey no one knew he was going to be in this thing covered in blood ends of his fingers sliced off looks at uh, and just looks up i need to speak with you whoa That's an introduction. That's one hell of an introduction. Now, we already know this character in terms of the aesthetic and, like, actions we've seen throughout the film of these gruesome, horrific killings. I mean, say what you want. Seven was one of the most gruesome films to come out that year, at least in the the popular perception. Talk about... um directorial views. I don't think that was his first movie, but it's definitely one that he made yeah, his that name was one. Yeah, that was one of the first ones David Fincher did. His first one was actually Aliens 3. Okay. So, bit of a step up from that. It is where he kind of defines his voice, for sure. Though. Right. And we get, like, the nihilistic grittiness of this whole thing. We find out this character, John Doe, we never find out his real name, is this biblically obsessed psychopath who is convinced that if he can, like, demonstrate the deadly sins to the world via these horrible killings that he can bring about this sort of puritanical change in culture. And he's willing to go to insane lengths to do it. He's a mastermind figure. He's been planning this for years. And I won't... like Even though this thing came out in 1995, I won't talk about the ending. Because I think the ending is one of the most powerful scenes in cinema if you've, like, if you've seen that climactic moment. We'll talk about like suspense. What is in the box? What's Mac? in the box? And now it's a joke. Now it's a joke because it's sort of become a meme that's into the popular culture. But in 1995... Still, that scene still holds up, though. Yeah, tremendously well. Even if you know what's in the box, you never see it. You piece it together. It's this real fear of the unknown. But here's where it comes together. Because for many, for many, in many ways, John Doe, for me, is like Hal to you. Right. He puts on this facade of like the cold, calculating mastermind. But behind that... His brain is a whirling dervish of passionate, psychotic energy. We know that he's two steps ahead of the main characters, and we know that he's got horrific things in mind. Not out of some, not out of logic, but out of some sort of twisted faith. That's terrifying. That a logical person you can argue with. For Anton Chigurh. It'll be hard-pressed, but you might be able to talk your way out, like, to the point where you can get a coin flip. You might make it out of that alive. The T-1000, you can logic your way out of that. You know how to give him a wide berth. Even Jack Torrance, like, Jack Torrance, like, well, Jack Torrance, forget Jack Torrance, because that's still passion. That's the passion Mm -hmm. that I'm afraid of. But unlike Anton Shaker, unlike the T-1000, John Doe is, John Doe, it's, it's pure emotional energy there and whenever the characters push back on his logic and kind of demonstrate how crazy it is it doesn't matter because he just gets angry he won't operate on your logic he operates only on this insane emotionality Mm -hmm. but he has enough logic to put it to use so john doe for me is very frightening aided of course by kevin spacey's chilling performance um the man is a brilliant actor when it comes to villains and this is just this is just that in spades definitely one of his top villains for sure yeah Uh oh oh it wasn't locked what was that the the lock it just slid right off oh it wasn't locked to begin how'd you do that 
I just pulled it. What should this I guy, like? This guy's the worst serial killer ever. Here, what should I do with my thumb? Well, hold on to it. Okay. Well, okay. We can save our number one. Let's get out of here for now. Okay. Come on, come on, we can, we can move. Keep quiet, keep quiet. It's good to see you boys again. Oh, we were so close. Can can we go? Can we just sneak past you? Can you like close your eyes for a second? I don't think you understand how this works. What do you think this is? Some sort of movie? Do you like movies? Well, you see, when I was a child. Well, let me let me ask you real quick. We have we, we were talking through our favorite. We each picked five uh, scary movie villains, and we were down Why? to our final two. We want to see which one's the scariest. Why are you talking about your favorite movie villains? Well, because sometimes we do a podcast about movies. You do a movie podcast. Yeah, would you like to be the judge for our final... I would love to be the judge. I didn't know you boys were cinephiles. Didn't you know Clovis loves movies? I wanted to be... I wanted to be cinematic Clovis, but the alliteration did not work. Well, we'll work on that, Clovis. We'll work on that. Cinematic Clovis. I'll, I'll think about it, but for now, how about you hear our arguments for our, our the scariest movie villain? Why, certainly, young man. Let me hear it. Okay. Mac, do you want to go first or do you want me to? You than me, because we've been building up this way. Okay, alright. So, Clovis, Mac, my scariest movie villain is Howard from 10 Cloverfield Lane, played by John Goodman. Please continue. Are you a fan of John Goodman, Clovis? I am a fan of John Goodman. I loved him in Barton Fink. He was a terrifying villain. Well, let me set the scene for you. Mac, Clovis. Uh, <laughs> the, um, so imagine you are driving along the road at night. You're trying to go meet up with a friend. And all of a sudden, somebody hits you broadside. Like There's a car that hits you. Well, I mean, it hits you so hard you're unconscious. You wake up, and you're chained to a bed, like handcuffed to a bed. Not unlike how we uh, woke up the, today, Mac. It's not dissimilar. Just, just, just keep talking. Just keep talking. I'm um, sorry. Yeah. Um, and so you're chained to this bed, and you're kind of freaked out, and you start looking around and like for a key or for a person, and then you hear somebody coming downstairs, and the door opens, and it's John Goodman. And he seems nice. Like he seems cordial, and he offers you some food and says, you know, uh, well, I'll let you up in a little bit. You just need to stay here and rest and get healthy. You had a really bad accident. You ask questions, but he doesn't answer anything, and so he leaves the room, and you don't really want to eat the food. You don't trust it. You don't know who this guy is or where you are. Um, he comes back. He's telling you that the world has gone crazy and that it's not safe to go outside anymore. Things transpire and you realize you're in a bunker underground, like some sort of shelter. And he's not going to let you leave. But he's very nice and he's very cordial. And so... Uh, this is starting to sound a lot like Annie Wilkes from Misery. There's a um, another guy in the bunker too. And he seems like a totally reasonable, if a bit dude broy college-aged kind of guy. He's probably in his 30s, um, so a little after college. But uh, And he seems not to think anything is odd with any of this. And so he kind of gives credence to the argument that maybe things aren't safe outside. Um, but things start to devolve when you start to discuss when he starts to talk about his daughter and pictures of his daughter. Uh, you start finding pictures of his daughter, and he starts to get a little snippy whenever you do anything even close to what he tells you not to do. He has very strict rules. So if you drop a fork, you eat food you're not supposed to. He starts to get mad. Um, and he seems to be hiding secrets. And I don't want to give too much away. Right, yeah, because I've not seen this yet. I really want to. Right. Suffice it to say, John Goodman is the main monster of this movie. Because you're trapped in a bunker with him. And there is this tension between this monster that you're with in the bunker and the possibility of what's outside. And the movie bearing the name Cloverfield suggests some kind of kaiju spider monster or something. 
Um, and so as an audience, we're left not really knowing what's true. And so it's it's a taut, tight movie, and it hinges on um, Mary Elizabeth Winstead's performance uh, as a an Ellen Ripley type, honestly. Um, and it hinges on John Goodman's ability to be the monster. And um, I, 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 I could make a better case if I could spoil it, but I don't want to spoil it. And so I'll just leave it with uh, John Goodman basically is the tension in this movie. Hmm. Okay. Well, I think you make a mighty compelling case there, Mr. Potter. Now you, Mr. Sexton, what is your pick? So, my pick's a bit different, again. Um, though I certainly, I certainly like your argument there. For me, I think the most frightening performance I can think of, of the films I've seen, I won't say this is of all time, but of what I'm familiar with at least, would be Heath Ledger's final performance as the Joker in the dark in the 2008 The Dark Knight by Christopher Nolan. Good choice. So going into this, there was a problem of there was of course the obvious palimpsest problem. How do you create the Joker? A problem that a character that we've seen a thousand times. And we've seen everybody hates the casting of the Joker and Batman every time it happens. Yeah, every time because how do you create that sort of insane gnostic evil? Right. How do you do that? Do you go for sort of like the gangster villain of Jack Nicholson, or do you go for sort of like the clown prince of uh, the clown prince of crime that is uh, Mark Hamill's interpretation? Heath Ledger did something very interesting. Heath Ledger has this twisted, demented figure, and of the villains I've talked about thus far, uh, he has a certain visceral nature to him, a certain lack of polish, presented as if it were polished. So, uh, take for example a comparison to uh, Mark Hamill's interpretation of the Joker. Mark Hamill is very sharply dressed, and for all of like the insane twists, clearly a lot of effort goes into everything that that animated version of the Joker. For Heath Ledger's interpretation, you get the idea that everything has been thrown together. Very last minute. There's a grittiness, there's a grime to the whole thing. But the reason the Joker's so frightening, on top of the manic performance, the jovial insanity brought to like every waking minute, as well as the very violent nature, the fact the Dark Knight wasn't rated R is kind of shocking, yeah. given some of the stuff that the Joker does throughout. But where Heath Ledger really sells it is, again, in the philosophy department for me. On top of everything that we've seen, it's this insane worldview that he puts forward that, like, the only way to live... He has a sick and twisted version of Sartrean existentialism. Rather than that sort of um, heroic, op that sort of heroic optimism, mm -hmm. that tough optimism, he turns it on its head. If, if everything is constructed, if everything has no meaning, then the only way to truly live freely is to make sure that everyone is constantly aware of that, to perpetuate this kind of insane anarchy. It's not even about thirst for power, because routinely the, the Joker says, hey, I'm a dog chasing cars. I wouldn't know what to do if I caught one. That's not the point. I'm just trying, I'm trying to make the world a little less serious. Mm -hmm. He strips down conventions as we understand them and sort of reveals this uh, telosless world and thrives on, like, the violence that you can do in that space. The Joker is deeply unnerving, this variation of the Joker, because for, the, for really the first time in cinematic history, I would argue the only time in cinematic history, even looking past the campiness of Jack Nicholson's take, we see just how, how visceral and perturbing this rampant, Shigur-esque, arbitrary uh, violence can be. Mm -hmm. It's not, And the worst part is, there's always that question of, is he going to do it? Is he going to force someone else to do it? He's got the insane passion that we see in Jack Torrance and John Doe. He's got the calculated, the calculating capacity we see in Shigur and John Doe. I think, and I think he defines his hero too. He does. Yeah, he does. Um, 
the not only like in the overall Batman mythos does the mm-hmm. Joker kind of define Batman it's uh, specifically yin, in this right, movie. It's a yin and yang thing, but here. Batman becomes defined by what he's willing to do as opposed to what the Joker's willing to do. And there's this constant clash of... Well, I mean, the Joker puts it very well at the end of the film. It's an immovable object meeting an unstoppable force. Right. The Joker, for me, even though there have been some frightening performances, I think I find his performance the most frightening. And yeah, I mean, it does a really good job of showing how the Joker sees the veneer of civilization, the artificiality of it. And he just likes to keep pushing at it. Like he says at the end of the movie, all it takes is a little push. Oh, yeah. Just... So, again, for me, he has some of the characteristics of these other villains that make him the most frightening. Mm-hmm. Even though The Dark Knight is not a horror movie, watching... Don't, don't lie to me. The first time you watched it, you were terrified of the Joker. Especially the... Um, I think one of the best shots he has in the movie is when it's that camera footage where he's torturing the guy. Yeah, that's... And he's got the camera right up in his face, and he's he's disregarding all cinematic rules too, and all rules of photography, and that, right. that's terrifying to me. I'm kidding, but it's <laughs> well, well, on top of that, it's yeah. visceral because we've like in re, in the real world we see footage yes, like that. That's the joke. That's what's great about this Joker, as opposed to again, like say the Joker of the Arkham games or Jack Nicholson's take or anyone else. It's because he's so recognizable. This Joker right. could exist easily. That's why he's so scary. Yeah, and I mean. You brought up the Arkham Joker, and he's... I mean, th- that's that, that series of video games is basically an extension of the 90s animated series. And, I mean, it's it's an extension of Mark Hamill's Joker from there. Well, absolutely, yeah. Um, and so that that is definitely the... It is a heightened take. I mean, that is that is a very different version of Batman than we have Nolan, where Nolan, Nolan's doing what if Batman was real, basically. Right. And with that version of the Joker, we get someone who's both incredibly frightening, but also... Frighteningly believable. Right. It's his believability that makes him mm-hmm. so scary. He's got like, all these elements of, the, of these other characters, but John Doe, no one's going to, like, very few human beings have the willpower to, like, dedicate to, like, a task as large as this for a passion as dedicated as this and be as, like, competent as this. The T-1000's a robot. Anton Shiger is close. Anton Shiger is close. But even then, like, he's almost cartoonishly difficult to kill. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Jack Torrance, I mean, the the devil and supernatural spookiness. Right. I buy this Joker, and he gets the crap kicked out of him. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that's another. I mean he's so believable because he's human. I mean because he can be killed, but he's. I mean he avoids it. I see him as a solid. I see him as like the perfect counterpart to Shiger, mm-hmm. but unlike Shiger, he's got a goal in mind. Yeah. And that that's that little edge pushes me over. Um, and really makes the Joker the most frightening character. I like it, yeah. I, mean, I think I was helping make that case, so I, yeah. th- I think I have an idea. So, Clovis, what, what, what's your final judgment? I think both you boys make fine arguments. However, I have a soft spot for Nolan myself. I think I have to give it to Christopher Nolan's take on the Joker. Hooray! Does this mean we get to live? Well, I'll need to eat something this evening, but I'll figure it out. Maybe find a nice gas station attendant. Mr. Clovis? Yes? My thumb fell off down there. Would you you take it as like an offering of peace and friendship? Well, you boys led me on your film podcast. However, I would gladly take this as a peace offering should you offer it. Well, with the utmost respect... To your refined taste, I offer you my humble thumb, sir. Well, thank you. I'll saute this up real nicely with some pasta. Well, before you do that, uh, I'd love to get out of here. Um, Certainly. Uh, down the hall to your left, you'll find the front door. All right, Clovis, thank you. If we ever have uh, another podcast that you'd be good for, we'll, we'll come back and see you. Please, by all means, tell your friends. Bye, Clovis. Bye, Clovis. You boys take care now. <laughs> I like him. I think what we need to do is next week we should talk about the top five superhero movies. I like that plan. And I'm going to go find a prosthetic thumb. I thought your thumb grew back. By Jove. We got to work on your memory, buddy. So thanks for listening, everybody. And I'm Judd Potter. And I'm Max Sexton. Our theme music is Ad and by Broke for Free. 
You can tweet us on Twitter at NerdsApocalypse, or follow us on Tumblr as well. If you want to keep up with all our episodes that they come out, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or really any podcasting service of your choice that exists in this apocalypse. And if you'd like to recommend possible future movies for us to watch, or future conversation subjects, or just join in the conversation, follow us on the socials. And if you enjoy the show, leave us a rating and review on iTunes, and that will really help us grow and improve the show. And specifically iTunes. It's just a way for uh, us to appear more when people search for things and appear on lists and charts and things. So yeah, so next week we're going to talk about our uh, favorite picks for superhero films. And, you know, hopefully nothing will go wrong. I'm sure nothing will. But, um, but yeah, enough about me. Um, I, uh, my hands are getting a little bit sore up here and my mouth is getting tired of running. <laughs> Let me try that again. That didn't make uh-huh. a lick of sense.